welcome to the Toasted Sister podcast, radio about Native American food. I'm Andy Murphy. Everything that sustains us comes from a seed. From the bread we eat to the cotton underwear we have on, seeds were the first step. I talked with Rowan White about how seeds and Native Americans have a strong connection and partnership. She's a founder and director of Sierra Seeds Cooperative and the National Project Coordinator for the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network. And she's Akwesasne Mohawk. So what is Sierra Seeds? Can you tell me about that? I uh, relocated here to Northern California around, gosh, it's almost been 12 years now, and uh, recognized that there was a beautiful, vibrant local food system in our area, but there was really nobody talking much about local seeds, and seeds have been a great passion of mine for the last almost 20 years now, um, really following this path of learning about our ancestral foods and seeds. And so I hosted a seed swap and um, and then found some folks there who were also interested in learning about how to steward seed and uh, why local seed is important to local food systems. And so we I founded Sierra Seeds, which was a group of people working together to uh, grow regionally adapted seed within our uh, food and watershed. Um, and at the heart of what we do at Sierra Seeds is that we we are stewarding seed and offering it to our community. But we also, um, at the very heart of what we do at Sierra Seeds, is to grow good seed stewards. So education is at the very center of our focus. So I've been extending some of that work um, you know, because of my indigenous heritage and roots, I really feel compelled to work within uh, tribal and um, indigenous communities. I get to travel all over Indian country and collaborate and facilitate different educational trainings and you know, mentorship gatherings to help empower others to learn the art of indigenous seed stewardship. Where are seeds today? Have seeds been colonized or is this movement that you're involved in a movement to help save indigenous seed? I mean, can you tell me where seeds are now? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I came to this work really from a very personal place. I, I had I found myself working on an organic farm 18 years ago. You know, I was just really starting to get literate or get, you know, gain some understanding about indigenous foodways, you know, because of the impact of colonization and acculturation within my own home community. You know, the last person to farm in my family was my great-grandfather, you know. I, I came to understand, you know, through this work on this organic farm that our seed resources across the globe, you know, uh, um, were disappearing at a very rapid rate, um, that we were, you know, really at risk of losing a lot of this amazing, incredible you know, genetic diversity and agricultural biodiversity that had, you know, been handed down from generation to generation within our indigenous communities because of the dismantling and the, you know, the erosion of our traditional foodways within our, our native communities. And so it was really, you know, it started for me, you know, as a personal journey to really understand this and see how it impacted our, my own home community uh, of Akwesasne. But I realized pretty quickly uh, that this impact was not only all over, you know, Turtle Island and North America, but globally that, that you know, our seed resources um, were very much at risk. And having been involved in this movement for over 18 years now, we see not only a growing food sovereignty movement within indigenous communities, you know, this understanding of our sovereignty is really dependent on our ability to nourish ourselves. 
Well, what we see is that seed sovereignty is a key piece of that because seed stewardship and having access to regionally adapted, culturally appropriate traditional seeds is at the foundation of any durable local food system. And so very much in many communities, there's a lack of access to traditional seeds. You know, the, the, these seeds had, you know, really, you know, fallen to the wayside. People weren't growing them anymore, only a handful of folks who really were stewarding them anymore. But we're seeing a resurgence. And, you know, part of the work that I'm involved in now is to really help nourish and support that movement of, of seed sovereignty within the food sovereignty movement. And part of that work is um, what I like to call rematriation. Uh, you know, we, we, we hear about repatriation of cultural artifacts from museums and whatnot, but in many of our traditional uh, indigenous communities, the seed work and the agricultural work was, you know, belonged to the women, right? It was, it was women's work. And so when we're embarking on this process to rebuild seed systems and to rebuild community seed projects that really focus on seed sovereignty, oftentimes we're having to bring our seeds home again, you know, from um, public access seed banks or from heirloom or heritage seed catalogs that we see. There's oftentimes this rematriation that has to happen, this bringing of the seeds home. And so that's a really beautiful and heartfelt part of the work that I get to do is to get to see this renewal of these relationships. Because many of us as Native people, we view these seeds as our relatives. You know, they've been with us since the beginning of time. Many of these seeds are woven into our creation stories and our cosmologies and our understanding of who we are. And so to see these seeds being brought home, um, being you know, stewarded by uh, Native communities again, it's really a hopeful part of the food sovereignty movement. So what are uh, traditional seeds? Are these seeds that have been in the tribe or in a certain family for a long time? I mean, maybe you can throw out a couple different names, a couple different varieties of some of these uh, traditional seeds. I'm just going to take a little bit of a step back to give a little context, which is that, you know, this idea of having a seed catalog or that seeds were grown off the farm and not a part of a a traditional farming system is a very new thing, you know, Um, and it's a very European, you know, colonized system. Any tribe or indigenous community that engaged in agriculture, in, in any form of agriculture, whether it was you know, traditional row crops, corn, beans, squash, or whatever it was that they sustained themselves on, they were also simultaneously saving the seed. And so you were a seed keeper if you were a gardener. That was inextricable, right? And so these these traditional uh, heirloom seeds or heritage seeds, uh, they're sometimes called, sometimes you hear them called land races, mostly because they, they were are very specifically selected and saved in a very unique um, bioregion with a very unique set of criteria from indigenous peoples on how those varieties were cooked. What was the climate like? What was the environment like? How how are those seeds adapted to that specific region where they were? And so each and every community that I have the good fortune to work with, including uh, my own community of Akwesasne and um, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, you know, we have our own unique and beautiful and diverse collection of traditional seeds that we've been carrying since time immemorial, right? And they all have cultural memory. They all have stories. They all have some significance to us because they have been with us, you know, season after season. So, you know, when I uh, stepped onto the seed path, 
seeds and food were really my pathway home. You know, it was a really a beautiful green flowering pathway to walk down to say, what were the foods of my ancestors? What were the seeds of my ancestors? And so when I embarked upon that path, you know, I, I traveled all over New York and southern Canada, um, talking with elders, gathering seeds. And what I realized was that we had a whole basket full of all sorts of different seeds. We had Mohawk red bread corn and uh, Seneca calico or Hekua corn. We had the beautiful Iroquois white flower corn that we use a lot in our uh, traditional soups and cornbreads. We had over a dozen different types of corn, all very unique and different, um, and had been selected that way on purpose throughout our cultural history for different purposes, you know, for different ceremonies, for different uh, recipes, uh, for different season lengths and different areas of growing. Um, We had over two dozen different types of beans, you know, pole beans and snap beans, ones that look like like goose eggs and one that looks that are shiny and look like uh, red cranberries or um, ones that we use a lot. They're like they're called a um, hayot bean, which in our in Seneca language is is a cranberry and it's speckled. Um, and then we had a bunch of different squash and um, potatoes and sunflowers and and various things. And all of those seeds, um, the Haudenosaunee or Mohawk seeds that had been handed down from one generation to another had been grown in our specific bioregion um, using uh, the three sisters planting method. So they were very much selected to thrive within that particular type of polyculture or permaculture planting system. And so they were just very well adapted to our very specific traditional food system. You know, the definition of a traditional seed is that it's been grown by a particular community over many generations and has been handed down in that way. But the beautiful part about these traditional seeds is that they all carry a very unique cultural memory and story uh, that makes them so precious to us and really a vibrant part of our cultural renewal is that when we begin to carry these seeds again and care for them and tend for them, tend to them in our gardens, that we're rehydrating a whole constellation of cultural memory about what it means to be indigenous. You know, for myself, when I began to care for corn, the act of caring for those corns taught me how to be a mother and taught me how to be a woman in my full capacity and how to nourish my community. It taught me the understanding and the significance of our ceremonial cycle and realizing that our ceremonial cycle was an agricultural calendar. So it gave a whole new dimension of my understanding of what it meant to be a Mohawk woman. And and that's what I think is the most powerful part of this food and seed sovereignty movement is seeing what an important part and role it plays in our in our cultural uh, revitalization and renewal. Could you explain just a little more about uh, stories that these seeds hold? I mean, um, maybe you got into it a little bit, but uh, explain what some of these uh, seed stories are. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're all connected. You know, like we have a bean, we call it our Mother Earth bean. And in our creation story, we have a woman, you know, a sky woman, she fell from um, the sky world into this vast watery abyss. Turtle came up and offered her a solid place to stand. And she began to sow seeds and sing the world awake. And so we have a whole bevy of seed songs that go with our planting, our traditional planting. 
And when she began to sow these seeds on the earth, the earth began to come alive. And we have one particular bean in our collection that we call the Mother Earth bean. And that was one of the original beans that was given to us during that unfurling of the creation story. And so when we plant that bean, we renew that connection, especially as women, to our part of the continuous unfurling of the creation story. Like we renew that covenant or that commitment to care for those seeds that Sky Woman gave to us. When you have stories like that, it, it restores that love, that, that beautiful connection that you want, you know, that, that, that bean is a part of your family. It's a part of your creation story, part of your understanding of who you are. You know, in more contemporary times, we have stories that, you know, have elements of you know, grief and displacement, like um, during the Revolutionary War, uh, when General Sullivan, Sullivan, on orders from George Washington, was sent into Seneca territory uh, to basically destroy and burn all of the cornfields um, because they were trying to destabilize the Haudenosaunee Confederacy during that time because some of the tribes uh, within the Haudenosaunee Confederacy had sided with the British and some had sided with the Americans. And so there was this destabilizing that was happening, and they targeted our, our food systems. And at that point, they say that there were close to a million bushels of corn that were burned in an effort to starve and to, you know, really undermine the security of the Haudenosaunee people. But we were able to keep some of our seeds through all of that displacement, and we actually have this kind of soup that we make that we call like burnt corn soup. And it was something that evolved from our resilient nature to take some of this burnt corn that um, the military had had tried to destroy. And we used it and, and still cooked it even though it was burnt because uh, we, we had to persist. We had to continue to feed our children. We had to continue to do this work. But now it's something that we eat often. And, and, and it, it kind of reminds us of like some of the hard times that we went through as people, but that we're still here and we're still survivors. So when we use uh, the white corn and we roast it and we make that soup, it also ties back to a story within our history that maybe wasn't the most pleasant part of our history, but also shows us like that we can persevere through adversarial times, you know? So again, each and every one of these seeds has a specific place or a specific person that it was tied to. Many of our varieties have family names attached to them. So you remember, oh yeah, that was a woman in, uh, at Cataraugus who really cared a lot for the seeds and really kept them going for her people. Or, you know, so there's all this lineage and constellation of story that surrounds uh, the seeds that are in our collection. When you grow uh, some corn or some squash, does that maybe make the food taste differently? I mean, can you taste these, uh, you know, these stories and the history in things that were grown from indigenous seeds? Absolutely. You know, I have a, I have a, a deep faith in knowing that our bodies crave these kind of foods because it's, it, our blood and our bones are made of this. This is what these are the foods that fed our ancestors. You know, a long time ago, our ancestors came into an agreement with the plant kingdom. You know, our plants, the, the food plants. 
that we were going to take care of each other. So we were going to take care of the seeds and the seeds took care of us. And it was this beautiful reciprocal relationship that we engaged in. And as it's been told to me by my elders, it, it's kind of like a marriage, right? Like it's a, it's a long-term commitment that we made to one another to give up a little bit of our wildness and the, the plants were going to give up a little of their wildness and we were going to work together in cooperation. And, and so we co-evolved with these these food plants, the corn, beans, and squash, and the various other seeds over, you know, many, many, many generations. And so our bodies are very much adapted to be deeply nourished by these particular food crops. You know, we um, were, were made of them. You know, it's, it's our, our many, many, many generations of, of people eating these foods. And so, you know, when, our, when we eat them, it's really the best way that we can be healthy as Native peoples is to eat our traditional foods in that way. And I feel like it nourishes us. There's a, a terroir or a, a flavor of the land of knowing that these were uh, seeds that fed our ancestors, that they selected them for very particular flavors or for particular colors or for particular use within our traditional culinary arts, like, you know, the... Uh, we would take the corn and we would um, boil it in the wood ash and, and nixtamalize the corn so we could make corn soup. And so all of these seeds have been selected within, you know, all of that cultural context. I read in that email that you gave me, and um, one term uh, I'm kind of curious about is uh, ethical seed stewardship. Uh, what does that mean, ethical seed stewardship, and how can it be not ethical? When we talk about seeds, some people say, I'm a seed saver, or I, I do seed saving, or I produce seed. What I like to do is, is kind of language it so that we're understanding that this is a relationship that we have with our seeds. So when we talk about seed stewardship, it implies a relationship. It implies that we're taking care of them. And, you know, and in some ways, it's also implicit that they are taking care of us. As we know uh, across the globe with the industrialization of the food system, um, that there are ways that people are producing seed and creating seed and managing seed in ways that, in my opinion, and in I think in alignment with our cultural values as Indigenous peoples, are unethical. Things like genetic modification of seed, you know, growing seed in a fashion where you're using fungicides and pesticides and, you know, all manner of different um, chemical inputs. So the focus of our mentorship programs and, you know, the way in which we steward seed in an, you know, an ethical way is to um, not not only restore the uh, like the cultural context of how are we approaching caring for these seeds in a way that's in alignment with how our ancestors did it um, and carried these seeds, things like are we asking permission in the right way? Are we doing our seed ceremonies? Are we singing our seed songs? Are we you know upholding those certain responsibilities? that were carried down alongside these seeds, you know, the ways in which we tend the earth, the ways in which we care for these seeds, right? So that's part of the cultural protocols, um, to, you know, to seed stewardship. And then also, um, you know, on a community level, how are we sharing these seeds in a way that's, uh, that, that has integrity? Um, how are we creating access to these seeds? Because we hold these seeds in common and as a, as a tribal community, as an indigenous community, these seeds don't belong to any one of us. Really, they belong to our children, right? They're a, a cultural inheritance that we have that we're supposed to take care of so that it's in good shape for the next generation, so that our children will have food to eat and our, our grandchildren will have food to eat. So 
when we talk about ethical seed stewardship, we're also thinking about how can we care for these seeds as a community? Um, how can we make sure that there's access to them? How can we also protect them also is a part of the stories. How can we protect them from um, corporations who may who who see things differently, who have a very different paradigm, who may see these seeds simply as a jumble of traits or a, you know a collection of um, you know vitamins and minerals and not necessarily as whole beings, and and may want to patent them or may want to take them and hybridize or uh, genetically modify them in some way, shape, or form. So we also have that responsibility to protect our traditional seeds and make sure that they're they're being cared for uh, with love and respect and with honor, um, because that's the way that was handed down to us, that that was how, you know, our ancestors carried these seeds in a good way. Do you think we'll ever be in a place where we are growing our own food from uh, these seeds that have been in our tribes and our families for, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of years? I mean, uh, you know, because right now, a lot of us, uh, you know, we've never eaten a, a heirloom squash or, you know, a, a, a corn or something like that. And we probably never will. I mean, do you, how do you think we can get to a point where we are nourishing ourselves with something that's truly indigenous? I think the hopeful answer to that is that um, we're already seeing um, the seeds of hope of this food sovereignty movement really just multiplying exponentially, you know, um, and, and again, this is on the shoulders of so many foresighted elders who kept these seeds alive amidst the displacement and the acculturation and the colonization. You know, for me, I, first and foremost, we have to offer our gratitude and thanks for those people who amidst, you know, such, you know, unspeakable grief and, and displacement really kept these seeds alive so that we might have them today. You know, in my work of traveling around to, you know, so many different Native communities is that each and every year we're seeing more and more access to these sorts of foods through, um, you know, the diligent work of people establishing community seed banks, community gardens, and, you know, different food sovereignty projects. And I think every year that we continue to um, inspire and empower one another, uh, that, that we'll only see more and more of this. And I think the key to that is to making sure that we're including young people in, in, these, in this work. If we have programming or if we have mentorship that's really aimed at the youth, um, you know, they pick this up so quickly. And, and, and when it's a part of their, their childhood and when it's a part of their upbringing, then, then that's like where the roots will go deep, when, when we'll really uh, see this food sovereignty movement really multiplying exponentially. For instance, my children, you know, we here have this farm, uh, we steward 10 acres here, and we grow a lot of the food that we eat um, on our farm. And yesterday we had a pot of soup that had everything in the pot was something that we grew from our own seed. You know, And so this is something that happens often in my home. Their taste buds are very decolonized. Um, and then they share that enthusiasm with other children that they're with when, we, when we're home at Akwesasne. I think, again, it, it really takes passionate people within communities who, who are really committed to uh, saving these seeds and making them available into their communities. 
um, you know, so we're seeing chefs, like amazing chefs like Sean Sherman and Loretta Bear Odin and, you know, various other chefs who are really bringing these indigenous foods out, you know, into the world and showing people how uh, we can cook these foods. I, you know, I, I hear of programs where they're getting a lot of these indigenous foods into the Head Start programs and into, you know, the schools so that kids understand, you know, why these foods are important to us as Indigenous peoples. And um, so, you know, I, I have great hope that, you know, every season there's just going to be a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and it really, um, it's part of our healing. It's a part of our healing from the um, the wounds of colonization. It's a part of the healing of our historical trauma is to, to you know, reclaim these foods. You know, the, the project that I work with, Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance and the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network and many other organizations across um, Indian country, we're all working very diligently to just create better access to these foods. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, but let's take it back a little bit. You mentioned a soup with everything in it. Uh, what <laughs> What is that soup? Can you describe it? Yeah, no, we uh, we made a soup yesterday. So we uh, grow a lot of our own seeds here on our farm, and many of them are uh, traditional heirlooms to my people, to the Mohawk people. But we also grow a whole plethora of different vegetables, and, and we feel very committed uh, my children, my two children are very uh, involved in um, food preparation and gardens and, you know, it's kind of their classroom. And um, so yesterday we have this variety of squash that we grow every few years that's part of our collection. It's called Buffalo Creek and it's a large Hubbard type squash that's an heirloom from um, my people. Uh, it's bright orange and they're huge. And so we grew a big crop of them in our whole living room is full of these squashes because squash, you know, they, they keep all winter long. And so it's been kind of a running joke. You know, it's like our, our cousins, our squash cousins are like you know, taking over the whole living room, you know. And so we, you know, cut up one of those and, and diced it up along with some leeks that we had in the garden and some heirloom tomatoes. They're called black cherries and some uh, sweet peppers, they're called stocky red roasters, and some garlic that we had grown, and, um, you know, we just sautéed it all together and added uh, one of our homestead roosters in the pot and cooked it up, and it was just delicious. You know, it was, a, it was just an incredible combination of different flavors. It nourishes me in a way to say, like, I want this for everyone, and that was really at the heart of my uh, passion for my work, which is at the heart of it is teaching people how to do this, is because I want them to feel nourished in that same way. I want them to have access to, you know, healthy food. And and um, it's really not that difficult, you know. Tell me about the um, Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance and the Indigenous Seed Keepers uh, Network. The Indigenous uh, Seed Keepers Network is a project that's part of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. The Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance was a group that really evolved out of, um, you know, many years of all of these food sovereignty summits and the, you know, different conferences and different conversations that were happening um, about the importance of really establishing um, food sovereignty programs, you know, within our communities. And, um, and so I've been working with, you know, kind of, in collaboration with this new emerging organization. And um, in the last few years, I've had the great good fortune to be able to go around to different, I've been invited to different um, indigenous commu tribal communities uh, to help them kickstart their seed banks and their community seed projects. 
slowly I realized that there was a lot of similarities within these different communities who really wanted to reclaim their seeds and to care for their seeds in a good way again. We began to talk about this idea of having a national network that really supported and and um, leveraged resources and cultivated solidarity within the various seed sovereignty initiatives that were happening at the very local level within you know many of these different tribes. Um, just in, in 2016, we launched the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network. Uh, you know how I envision it as kind of like a shade tree, so it, and, and to really help nourish and support the little saplings or seedlings of these little seed sovereignty projects that are happening um, and can offer resources like mentorship training, educational resources. Um, We can organize national and regional uh, conventions or conferences. Uh, We can help with like seed policy issues and creating guidelines to help protect seeds from patenting and biopiracy. It's a national organization that really leverages a lot of those uh, resources. And so we, you know, we have a lot of communities that are are getting involved uh, in this network. Um, we'll be having um, uh, intertribal seed summit every other year. Uh, we're developing a seed sovereignty assessment toolkit that helps communities like walk through the different steps and stages of developing a seed project or a seed bank. When we come together to pool our resources and to help uh, teach each other and learn from the experiences of each other, then it just strengthens our movement. So I have great faith that, you know, we're really going to put a, a fresh layer of compost on the seed sovereignty movement, and we're going to really just catalyze a whole new generation of confident Indigenous seed stewards. I'm Mandy Murphy, creator and host of Toasted Sister, and music was created by C.W. Ion for Toasted Sister. If you like listening to this show, which I think is the only podcast out there about Native food, please tell your friends about it and share your favorite episode on Facebook and Twitter. For more episodes, visit ToastedSisterPodcast.com, tune in on SoundCloud, and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Addict. <laughs>